2: Hello, thanks for tuning in to another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore. I'm the Director of Communications at the National Cannabis Industry Association. I'm happy to have a longtime member and actively engaged NCIA member, Mark Slaw, from our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee on the show today. He is CEO and owner of iComply working in the specialist sector of compliance for the medical, retail, and hemp industries and has over 13 years experience in cannabis industry development consulting and operational compliance and over 22 years experience in regulations and risk management. He is a qualified expert witness on cannabis compliance and regulations in Colorado, and his company, iComply, provides operational compliance services and validation of over 200 cultivation, manufacturing, and processing and dispensing facilities since 2011, and consults for a variety of communities, organizations, and governments. Lovely to have you on the show today, Mark.
3: It's always lovely to be with you, Bethany. Thanks for having me.
2: Great. So in addition to what we've already shared, uh, let's learn a little bit more about you and your background and some of the things that you got into before getting involved in cannabis. What do you want to be when you grow up, right?
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, something like that. Um you know, it's weird. I feel like I got some karmic retribution. I used to work in uh, fraud and risk management in the banking sectors, uh, for like about eight years or so. And ironically used to shut down dispensaries in California who were using credit card processing and calling themselves flower shops. So I kind of came from it in a weird way, uh, on the enforcement. Interesting. Yeah. Before I got into, uh, college and into students for sensible drug policy. Um, it's a little bit of a, a late college goer, but they, uh, really opened my mind when it came to the international war on drugs, I'm also half Brazilian. My mom's from there, and I lived in South America, so I saw the day to day effects on the news there every day of of cops being, uh, you know, essentially uh, war drug drug war warriors into poor neighborhoods for the most part, and and killing uh, people over things like marijuana. Not to mention the cartels and uh, in, in Latin culture, anytime you collapse the word marijuana, it automatically uh, brings up images of things like traficantes and and uh, bad actors that have really run this game for a long time. And so through SSDP, I kind of realized that uh, there may be a more uh, beneficial way. and at that time we had uh, the rules and regulations changing here in the Colorado. and I did a six month analysis of the viability of operations in um, Colorado Springs, where I did a lot of my initial work and decided, you know what, it's the, the great recession. this looks like a great opportunity. Let me see if I can get my feet wet in this uh, brand new emerging industry and, here we are dinosaurs year later in cannabis, um, still doing compliance work as of uh, 2011, a few years after working for a few big operations kind of back in the day and uh, helping hundreds of people in lots of different states and countries with uh, sometimes the most boring, non-fun uh, stuff in cannabis, but the stuff that's fundamentally important to legitimization. And in that legitimization, we continue legalization efforts.
2: Right. Well, that leads to my next question about how you got involved in cannabis, but it sounds like you went from doing the banking side of, you know, effectively shutting down services for dispensaries in California to getting involved with SSDP, a really wonderful organization, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. That's awesome. Um, So what, what else spurred you into going all in? Uh, as a cannabis movement and now industry um, professional.
3: Yeah, I mean, I also grew cannabis, right? Was a, an old caregiver
2: 2008,
3: <laughs> 2009 days. Uh, me and a good buddy who's still in the industry and uh, you know, we didn't get caught kind of a thing, but we were definitely operating in the gray area and coming from the legacy market, we you know, really realized the challenges and difficulties that it would take to try to establish a business uh, in the industry, and to transition from sort of legacy to legitimate. And, um, you know, I think after MS-13 tagged our fence, I decided maybe it's just better to go legitimate and was kind of early on, uh, you know, putting folks together and helping out some of the initial uh, businesses representing their interests at the Capitol and running industry organizations and running the Amendment 64 campaign for legalization uh, on behalf of Southern Colorado. So doing what I could to try to create the legitimate space so that we really didn't have to operate in the shadows anymore.
2: Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for getting involved uh, in things here in Colorado as well. It's, it's become a domino effect across the country since Amendment 64 passed. And that, that had a lot to do with the messaging around regulating it like alcohol and it, cannabis being safer than alcohol, if I recall correctly. Is that right?
3: Yeah, I mean, that was definitely in the slogan of the campaign. It was in the ballot language. But places like Colorado Springs, right, second largest city in Colorado, decided to not go recreational, ignore the will of voters. So I spent another three years trying to get them to overturn the vote, trying to convince those business owners down there to uh, put their money where their mouth was and put their best effort forward. And I think finally this year, they'll be voting on it this November, uh, 10 years, right, after Amendment 64 passed uh, in that town. So it, it's, uh, it's amazing to think we're, we're ahead of the game. And in a lot of ways, we still... Uh, you know, are watching those dominoes fall. I mean, a big thing we forgot to do was, uh, you know, allow in social equity in Colorado and we're not doing a great job of it, for example. So, um, you know, we we called those people undesirables and told them they couldn't have business licenses. And you wonder why the, you know, the, the diversity in the industry doesn't look anything like the diversity of Colorado.
2: Yeah. We'll certainly get more into that in this episode. Um, so the Springs is kind of slowpokes when it comes to embracing Uh, what the will of the voters across the state ultimately wanted, Um, but lots of progress nevertheless. Um, So let's fast forward to what's going on today. It is 10 years after passing, eight years after uh, adult sales began here in the state of Colorado. Uh, Your company celebrated its 10 year anniversary last year, I believe. So congratulations for iComplies 10 years uh, operating. Um, and you've been involved in NCIA's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. So fast forward to today, wh- what are things looking like for you and in and, and the committee's work as well?
3: Yeah, um, so definitely speaking Portuguese, definitely speaking Spanish, uh, and being in Colorado, which is uh, you know, second only to minorities that are Latinos, Um, It was really important, uh, especially after my work in Puerto Rico, helping write the rules and regulations there. I think inadvertently, I kind of created a social equity model there where 51% of people that own the licenses had to be uh, sort of Puerto Rico residents. And it gave me some perspective um, that I don't think I had initially in Colorado. And I really felt uh, that I had a, a duty and obligation to use what knowledge and wisdom I have at this point in the industry to help guide Things forward. So when NCIA established the DEI committee, oh, going on three, four years ago, um, I was definitely on board to get involved and felt called to help the people most impacted by the war on cannabis. Help uh, generate them the most new generational wealth possible to sort of repriate from those harms caused by the war on drugs. So our day to day operations we're still handling things like standard operating procedure development, uh, responsible vendor training. Uh, doing things like metric reconciliations and ensuring that there's third-party validation to books and records, packaging, labeling, or auditing of facilities. So there's sort of the core work, application work for new states, especially around social equity. And then there's kind of what I do, which is still contribute to NCIA, DEIC, uh, working with other organizations that are passionate about social equity reform. And for the last you know, two years or so, we've been working on uh, really trying to look at what interstate commerce might look like with social equity at the front and center. It's kind of one of the big controversies of, of why we're not seeing some bills get passed because there's, there's definitely a feeling it doesn't do enough. Um, so these are all, all fascinating conversations that the NCI has offered a, a tremendous platform for, especially with their day-to-day engagement in DC and our ability to uh, make influence and change happen in the areas that matter most.
2: Yeah, thank you for diving into these issues with with NCIA and the rest of the members of the DEI committee as well. And I'm glad you mentioned the interstate commerce topic as well because we will be diving into that after we take our first commercial break so let's go ahead and do that let's take a break and then we'll be right back to chat more with mark slaw of i comply and ncia's diversity equity and inclusion committee stay tuned we'll be right back ncia's cannabis industry voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors
3: Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility
0: requirements and overdraft limits apply.
1: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh! The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org, paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
2: We're back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice on Cannabis Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Moore from NCIA, and we're chatting with Mark Slaw from I Comply, and he's very involved in NCIA's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. So before our first break, you mentioned interstate commerce is becoming an issue that's intersecting with social equity. And we've begun publishing uh, the blog series that you've been writing with the DEI committee on the intersection of interstate commerce, which we do not have as an industry right now, and how, how it plays into social equity. So I think it would be helpful first to define what interstate commerce is and why the cannabis industry as a whole really wants to achieve this for our industry. What's your insight into that?
3: Yeah. So the, the concept of interstate commerce uh, really is constitutional at a federal level. Congress essentially has the purview to regulate commerce between the states. So that's simply what we mean by interstate commerce. So you see it in alcohol, you see it in tobacco, you see it in firearms, you see it with the FDA, even CBD now is being regulated by a federal agency Uh, At some point, we'll see those regulations, but uh, to essentially ensure health, safety of the public, maybe to excise taxes and to issue certain rules and regulations. So when people are like, let's legalize it federally, we're sort of asking the question, well, how and what should it look like, especially if we have a federal prohibitive policy for the last 80 plus years that has caused very detrimental harm to a large segment of mostly black and brown Americans. Uh, you're talking about 20 million plus people being arrested, 10,000 Black youth a day being stopped and frisk in New York. I mean, these are really serious and detrimental um, issues that have been going on with the, the crime bill and with the escalated war on drugs in Reagan and going back to the scheduling and going back all the way to the Tax Act stamp of 1937. And even before that, looking at the racist language used uh, to promote the initial prohibition of cannabis, saying that smoking this would make... Darkies think they're as good as white men. I mean, these are it's it's no wonder we have the fruits that we've yielded from seeds like that. So I really think it's a federal issue. And I don't mm. think we can leave it up to the states, just like with civil rights, we can't leave it up to Alabama to get social equity right, right? We mm. can't leave it up to Mississippi to do what's right for social equity when they felt so justified in doing things for so long. So I think for us as a DEI committee we really looked at interstate commerce as sort of the silver bullet, the catch-all, the Civil Rights Act, if you will, at a federal level as our last resort to try to balance the scales of injustice that have been going on for decades. So if we don't have a way that's permitting the ability to export, import, and otherwise transfer or test marijuana between states, when we open up and try to sell California weed in New York legally, for example, We feel that people should be partnering with a majority of social equity folks to move that product and to have those permits federally in order to pay those taxes and gain that business from the the business of interstate commerce in order to make the most amount of new generational wealth possible for those most impacted by the war on cannabis and to align state social equity programs to a broader vision of what things might look like federally. So that's kind of what we're talking about in our blog piece and and what we're wanting people to understand and think about as it relates to interstate commerce and social equity.
2: Yeah, thanks for that insight. For for, for me, when I thought of social, uh, for interstate commerce specifically, I'm thinking there are certain parts of the country where the climate is just not conducive to growing cannabis. Maybe it's too cold, too hot, too humid, what have you. And then there's amazing cannabis coming out of California and the Pacific Northwest and things like that. So why would we force a state with poor climate to have to build all these expensive facilities just to grow cannabis when they could be importing it from California or Oregon or Washington? So intersecting social equity into this conversation, I think is super important. So now that we have sort of defined interstate commerce, how would social equity licensees and operators, which we're seeing more and more of as states legalize cannabis and actually write this into the bill, write this into the legislation. So when federal legalization finally happens, and we have some form of interstate commerce available for the cannabis industry, what would the immediate impact be for these social equity license holders and operators?
3: Yeah, so in our proposal, they're the most qualified, right? They have the experience, they have the education at that point, and they're uh, businesses that are owned by social equity licensees. So in our our paper, we would recommend that they go first and foremost to be the ones that are issued those initial permits. And to allow a lengthier time and process that puts these agencies in place and prevents uh, sort of the gray area of federal transactions happening between states without regulation and without creating these licensed opportunities to allow for more time uh, for other folks that aren't social equity licensees necessarily yet and don't have that experience to gain that, to partner correctly, uh, to be able to put themselves into business and be funded. So we really feel like... um, the social equity licensees that are going into business now are going to be the, the leaders of the future as it relates to interstate commerce and as it relates to the entire subsegment of what social equity cannabis operations and operators look like.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So in the year 2022, now we currently have 36 states with legal medical cannabis and 18 with adult use, 21 plus Most, if not all, have some form of social equity programs, giving black and brown business owners more equality in our industry. So from your perspective, I'd really love to hear what we think is working so far, as well as what's where we're still falling short.
3: Yeah, this is the juicy conversation happening between (laughs) NCIA, MCBA and other organizations, because that is the real question and i hate to say it but uh, the road to hell can be paved with good intentions and as much as some of these states are intending well uh there haven't really been any super successful state models there are always flaws people are stumbling over their own feet and they're trying to learn along the way one of the the powerful tools that um, mcba minorities for cannabis uh, minority cannabis business association put together is called the National Cannabis Equity Map. They put this together with ArcView and Weed Maps.
2: Oh, yeah, I uh, saw right that. In, that was great.
3: Yeah, and it actually starts to map out what the programs look like in each state. So if anybody here has been arrested and war on cannabis or grown up at the, at the detrimental impact to that, a family member, etc., you can look at this map and get a legal status of what the social equity um, situation laws look like. So in California, for example, a lot of it's been municipal up until it became statewide. Uh, Colorado right now, you have social equity, but no, uh, no other cities but Denver and Aurora are doing it. Uh, it's not even like these local governments know that they can do it or that they want to do it. And so you, you're left with a hodgepodge of different regulatory environments. And this all boils back down to compliance and understanding mm. what you can and can't do and the rules and regulations between multiple markets. Uh, to really see where those opportunities might be. And we're trying to learn collectively as as a group, as folks that care about these issues passionately, how we can propose better policies for future markets, right? It's one thing to complain that it's not working, but we're very solutions oriented. And so I think there's a policy paper coming out that we've contributed to as well that'll be talking about what are the suggestions we can do moving forward generally speaking, we face the same problems. And these are also addressed in our interstate commerce, uh, social equity blog that we're publishing in the three part series. Uh, but we do talk about overcoming the barriers to a lack of access to experience or education in the industry. How do we solve that problem? And access to funding or available real estate? How do we solve those issues? Right? Or not enough licenses or too many licenses? I mean, there's Kind of all of these conversations that come into play around what makes good policy and gives social equity people, right, not a head start, but an equal start. And that's kind of the most important thing here is to understand that many people have been disprivileged and what are the policies that are going to create the equity possible so that they can fairly compete in the industry and have an opportunity at new generational wealth.
2: Awesome. Great. Um, Yeah, thanks for that insight and appreciate all this work and forward thinking and solution focused thinking as well that the DEI committee is working with here. All right, let's take one more commercial break and we're going to keep chatting um, about this intersection between interstate commerce and social equity. And for listeners who want to check out the Minority Cannabis Business Association's map, It is minoritycannabis.org slash equity map. And you can check out that national equity map. It's clickable. It's very cool. Highly recommend checking that out. Stay tuned. We will be right back on NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice.
1: NCIA's
2: Cannabis Industry Voice will return once we give a voice to our sponsors. All right, we're back on NCIA's cannabis industry voice on cannabis radio. I've been chatting with one of our active members of NCIA, Mark Slaw from iComply, and uh, working with our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. Um, Before we took a break, um, you were really giving the breakdown of what is and what isn't working with the various hodgepodge social equity programs in cannabis across the country. Um, I just want to ask if there's any other ideas or suggestions for improving these that are coming up um, as we continue to navigate forward with with our industry's evolution.
3: Definitely. I mean, we just saw, you know, New Mexico put the cart before the horse. Um, There have been these models out there that think it's better for cities not to be able to prohibit, but to limit by zoning, et cetera, how many places can be objectively available for social equity. And we saw that social equity had no prioritization. There was no actual benefit to being in social equity. Uh, And in Colorado, your social equity folks have to be like tied to a dispensary to do things like delivery. And they're getting paid like Uber drivers, not like people that are selling cannabis and actually making margins. So we can see where there's a lot of problems. Um, I think that it's hard because uh, you have competing industry interests that want to, in a way, control or colonialize a culture that's largely come from social equity folks. And you also have them wanting to uh, almost be able to pick these folks up at a cheaper price later on. We just wrote a blog piece going more into this a little bit as well. And it's hard to stop some of those social forces from interplaying with politics and again, thinking they're being done in good intent, without actually asking, um, you know, people that are working on this issue what should be done. So I think some of the biggest improvements are having access to things like grant funding or low interest business loans from the, the tax revenues. If we don't fund these operators, they don't get into business. Uh, and just having them rely on predatory operating agreements or big companies coming in and pretending like they're their partner just to leverage them out later are some of the major problems we're seeing. So to be able to have um, access to banking, access to funding, uh, and access to an equitable starting point, pre-approved application funding right before you go talk to that, uh, that large cannabis MSO that might be interested in you are definite ways to make improvements. Additionally, social equity technical assistance programs are another way to make a difference by teaching people the business skill sets they need, the cannabis skill sets they need, helping walk them through business plan development and creation of projections and these sort of fundamental business understandings, and teaching them things like cannabis compliance, right? So they know what they do when they do get into business and how to run their business correctly, helping them with standard operating procedures and getting them a foot forward on some of those education gaps. Um, New York right now is doing things like buying the real estate on behalf of these social equity operators and subleasing it to them on behalf of the state to prevent predatory leasing arrangements. This is somewhat controversial, though, because if that operator wants to buy the building, can they? Can they sell it and get a piece of the building when it sells? So there's a lot of questions that are still coming around, a lot of these well-intentioned solutions. And it's always a work in progress to try to really determine what are the best ways to improve the, the uh the issues at hand in these states. Mm,
2: yeah, those everything you mentioned makes perfect sense. Especially, you know, the the access to capital. Uh, you can only rub so many pennies together. In, you know, it's going to take a long time to get a million dollars. And investing in this industry just to get started is incredibly expensive. the the the, the wall to jump is is a huge leap. Uh, which is which is why those who have access. To wealth and capital uh, are able to jump in so much faster um, than than the social equity applicants as well. Um, thanks so much for doing this juicy, juicy conversational work as you put it earlier. Um, it's a lot to talk about, and it's all important to break it down and really examine. And I'm looking forward to getting part three and, and of your blog series on the intersection between interstate commerce and social equity as well as further contributions on these issues as well. And as we're running out of time here, um, again, it was your 10 year anniversary at, at iComply last year. Um, you joined us in San Francisco last year and uh, Michigan at our conferences post COVID and spoke at those as well. Uh, how? 10 years later, 11, technically, they, they say the cannabis industry is like dog years, right? You said dinosaurs at the beginning of the show. How are you feeling? Are, are, we, are, we, are we chugging along here? Are we excited for the future? Are we exhausted?
3: I think it's a, a mix of all of that, Bethany, <laughs> and more. Um, you know, I, I want to always hope for the best, but prefer for the worst. That's kind of who I am as a risk mitigator. Um, and if you do nothing, you always get one result, which is nothing. So, you know, I highly encourage people that are passionate about this, that care about it, to pay attention to what's happening. Uh, there's conversations going on multiple angles, multiple people. Um, but at least you can try to make some, uh, difference in how this should come out and what it should look like. And so, you know, I really hope social equity continues to improve. I hope new opportunities are granted and open up, and And I hope interstate commerce has a large social equity component to it. Maybe according to our recommendations, which can really help uh, balance the scales of injustice for such a long period of time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining me on the show. And if you make it up to Denver, feel free to uh, try to beat me at a game of pinball. Uh, I'm pretty good, so I I don't know.
3: know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, And where can people find out more about uh, your company, iComply?
3: Yeah, you can visit us on our website, www.icomplycannabis.com, little letter I, complycannabis.com.
2: Awesome. Thank you again, Mark. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into another episode of NCIA's Cannabis Industry Voice. Until next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.
0: Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost.